Hello and welcome to Vanguard at Dawn. My name is Elisa and this is my co-host Ren. Hello. And today the title of our episode is The Whispers of a Revolution. In this episode, we're going over the events that led to and followed Nat Turner's rebellion. Now, before we get started officially, we just wanted to take a minute to get acquainted with some of you newcomers. First off, thank you so much for listening, and if you found us because of the lovely tea noir, well, clearly you have impeccable taste because tea is amazing, and we can't thank her enough for her shout out. She's an incredible woman, but we won't fangirl for too long because we could spend all day talking about her. <laughs> like I said in the beginning, I'm Elisa, and I am Black and Latina, and I run all of our social media accounts. Every post you see, whether it be graphics on Instagram or me popping off on Twitter, that is all me. So, all our accounts are Black Run, and if you are interacting with us online, you're interacting with me for the most part. I also handle transcribing the episodes that can be found on our blog on Blogger for our hard of hearing and deaf pals who might need access to those. Hey, <laughs> it's me, Ren, and I am very white. As for my role in the podcast, I am the head researcher and writer. I also edit all of the audio for our show, which for each episode takes roughly about 7,000 years. When my nose is not stuck in a book or my fingers are not click-clacking away on the keyboard while writing the script and my ears are not crying from the tedious task of editing, I will sometimes engage with you all online myself, especially when you're asking a question that is mainly a history-based one or if you're asking for clarification regarding something I've said. But if it is me responding to you, I'll let you know, saying something like, hey, it's me, Ren. And with that said, this is very much a 50-50 operation. Every post and graphic is approved by both of us, and every written segment gets run by and tweaked by both of us. So anytime I sign off with something that says Rin and Elisa online, it really is coming from both of us. Yeah, and with that said, let's get right into it today. The first thing I'm going to do is give a tiny little overview of what exactly Nat Turner's Rebellion was and some details about the event itself. We have once before referenced this event in our episode Building Blocks to a Civil War, and essentially this is one of the largest organized slave rebellions that took place in the Old South before the Civil War. The rebellion started in Southampton County, Virginia on the 21st of August in the year 1831, and it ended a few days later on the 23rd. It's not just the rebellion itself that's so notable. One of the most intriguing things about this event is how it carried such a ripple effect and how much light it shed on white fear. I think we covered why it was significant in relation to the Civil War pretty well, so let's not go into that too much today. Let's instead talk in a little more detail about what all happened leading up to it. A good way to better understand this rebellion is to know more about the leader of it, Nat Turner himself. And his is a story surrounded by speculation and misinformation, which is certainly not uncommon for major black figures, particularly in the slave South. Though that same energy can easily be found throughout history for the good figures too, even to this day. Take all the misinformation about the founding members of the Black Panthers, or even some people's education about Malcolm X. But yeah, so there's certainly a lack of clarity and unity regarding his life and views. There are some things about him, though, that can be verified. For instance, from a very young age, it was obvious that Turner was super smart. And this is something that most every historical perspective can agree on. 
But it's interesting that this fact about him lingers so frequently regarding accounts of his life, as the book Revolts, Protests, Demonstrations, and Rebellions in American History, edited by Stephen Danvers, points out on page 270. The reason why it's interesting that his intelligence is always brought up is because one of the lasting effects of the rebellion is how it spurred very radical changes in Virginian law and other southern states that centered around the education slaves were allowed to receive. There were laws that straight up banned any and all people from teaching any black person free or in bondage how to read. So what white supremacy is warning against is that not only should white people fear black people, but more than anything, they should fear this image of an educated black person. That very much is still present in today's society. We talked last week about the school-to-prison pipeline and the inequalities that are often found in lower-income schools that are predominantly filled with black and brown students. While a lot of that can be contributed to the desire to maintain the profitability of private prisons and incarceration, it can also tie into the notion Rin just brought up, an effort to keep marginalized people from proper education, because an educated, oppressed person can do so much damage when they are able to poke holes into the logic and rationalization of their oppressors. Definitely. Think back to The Sin of All Sins, the film The Birth of a Nation. Like, hello, the main bad guy was a mulatto man who was well-educated. His intellect is what made him such a threat to white supremacy. Turner's clear intelligence also served as an example to how flawed the commonly used view that many pro-slavery people took, which was the idea that black people's intellect was somehow inferior in some way to the white intellect. So now the people who remarked about that were completely proven wrong. But yeah, most everyone can agree that this dude was smart. He was also insanely religious too. In fact, he was a deeply devoted Christian. Furthermore, he believed himself to be one who possessed the power to communicate directly with and receive messages from God. In the book I just mentioned before, edited by Danvers, it actually goes into pretty interesting details about his life as a Christian. From an early age, as his brains as well as his love for God were both undeniable, he was encouraged by the people in his life, including his master and grandma, to be a preacher. And he did become one, but like I said before, he also saw himself as someone who could receive messages from God. There's one account of him running away at age 21 in the year 1821, but he came back after about a month after escaping. And he returned saying that God had told him to go back to his, quote, earthly master. But that is not all he saw or heard. Later in his life, after he was sold to a new master, when his original master died, he would receive even more signs that indicated to him he was able to communicate with God. In the year 1825, he saw, and this is a quote, white and black spirits engaged in battle as blood flowed in the streams, while a voice warned him, such is your luck, such you are called to see, and let it come rough or smooth. You must sure bear it. Then he later reported seeing other signs about when the time was right for this battle. 
He was said to have seen corn that was dripping with blood and lights from the sky that made him wonder if they were the lights of the Savior's hands. There are some other visions that he was said to have had and signs that presented themselves to him in relation to the pending revolution. Some of those signs actually came in the form of astronomical happenings, which is interesting. For instance, there was a solar eclipse in February of 1831 and Turner took this as a sign to start preparing for the rebellion. And fun fact, while fact-checking the book edited by Danvers, I found the solar eclipse was also mentioned on Nat Turner's Wikipedia page. And it said that it coincidentally happened on Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Believe it or not, I went to moonblink.info to verify if this was true or not. And it turns out, yeah, on February 12th of 1831, aka Lincoln's 22nd birthday, there was a solar eclipse that could be seen in the western sky, which is really cool. Not quite relevant, as Lincoln was so young and few people, including Turner, would have known about him at the time, but intriguing nonetheless. And while he missed his first planned day for the rebellion, which was going to be July 4th because he got sick, there was another weird astronomical event that made the moon appear unnaturally bluish green in color. That happened in August of 1831, and a week later, that is when the rebellion started. I think the initial thing people hear is that he returned to his earthly master. But from his description of the visions he had, he was not simply returning home. He was going back and waiting for a time to incite this battle. A battle that must take place because it was God that had gifted him with this quest. Then, over the course of years, he received signs and visions one after another, all seemingly in relation to this divine calling, which you might think would earn him a complete dismissal from other people. But he wasn't seen as an outcast, nor was he shunned by his community. He is certainly remembered by many today as a madman. But it was very much the opposite during his life. He was uplifted by others. Few denied his clear intelligence, nor his ability to preach the word of God. Other enslaved people referred to him as the prophet, but it wasn't just his fellow people in bondage that followed him. That's right. He was actually able to gain a few white followers as well, including a man by the name of Etheldred T. Brentley, who is mentioned in Nat Turner's official confession. And now that we've gone over Nat Turner himself, let's go ahead and switch to the goals that he had and what he intended for this revolution. First of all, it was his goal to kill a good amount of white people. He didn't discriminate based on age or gender, so he would kill women and children for this cause. That being said, however, what he did not want was to kill all white people. What his intention was, what he thought his divine mission entailed, was for him to end white supremacy as the evils of slavery were against God's will. So his goal wasn't aimless aggression towards white people, though that's how many white people made it out to be. And in all fairness, there were plenty of very bloody actions on his part. But basically, they were killing all the white people they saw because they were trying to show how serious this whole thing was. And I mean, think about that line that we said earlier, such is your luck. 
Such you are called to see, and let it come rough or smooth, you must surely bear it. It's clear he thinks that the fight is meant to be as bloody as needed to correct what he called the sins of man. That being said, I gotta say, there is some chilling detail that Turner went into when it came to the killings that took place. He talked about a lot of gory specifics pertaining to watching several different people being murdered. Some real scary stuff. So I'm going to try to give you the right numbers here. It's hard to do that because like literally everything I read presented different numbers. So keep that in mind. These are what I would call my best approximate numbers. Turner was able to recruit at least 60 and possibly more than 70 cohorts. They were able to kill about 60 white people. And keep in mind, it was difficult for black people to obtain guns because they were consistently stripped of that right. So they were doing all of this with like axes and stuff. Turner had even talked about how he was using a sword that was too dull to kill anyone with. Anywho, those are the numbers of the insurrection itself. Now, what happened as a response to this already gruesome event makes things even more disturbing. Remember, this was a time before phones, before televisions and news stations. Word of this event is only spread by mouth. And because of this, the truth was blown out of proportion to an insane degree, a response that can only be described as complete and utter white panic. White people believed the number of deaths were in the hundreds, that Turner and his fellow conspirators had black people on his side from other Virginian towns and even as far spread out as Alabama. And when militias came together to stop this rebellion, as bloody as the event was, it was amplified even more. In essence, it was like the soldiers and other white onlookers took this as a free pass to kill all black people in sight. Gory as the initial uprising had been, the numbers of black people murdered was insane. Just as Turner had not discriminated in age or gender, the militia and white moms didn't either. Around 120 black people were killed, most of whom had not participated in the rebellion at all, and 56 of his followers were executed along with Turner himself, though he had hid in the woods for months after the event, finally meeting his end on November 11th of 1831. And listen, I read the electronic version of Nat Turner's official confession, which we will be linking if you'd like to check it out yourself, but be forewarned. There are not only outdated terms, but it's very gross to read from top to bottom. The whole thing is disturbing. Nat Turner's what I might call delusion is not fun to read. One thing he was quoted as saying when asked whether he regretted killing all those people, he responded with, was Christ not crucified? But also, I can't stress how gross it is to see the way Thomas R. Gray, who was the guy who wrote down the notes for Nat Turner's official confession, talked about the situation. Although the thing that sticks out to me is that Turner was clearly disturbed. It wasn't education that made him kill all those people, and furthermore, it wasn't this pointless massacre. The dude was self-deluded, no doubt, but I think there is something being missed when people try and oversimplify this rebellion. What happened was, this man saw an unjust world. Not only was the world unjust, but there was no clear way out of it. Slaves had no rights. 
It's not like he could go vote and elect people to create change. It's not like he could demand for his people to be treated better without severe backlash. There was no way out of the only life a slave would know, except if their master released them, or they escaped by running away, or with violence or force. I think for a white person like Gray, who had never known the evils of bondage, who had never suffered the wrath of a master, to look at the case of Turner and his influence as nothing more than the result of a madman who wanted nothing but blood is just not the whole truth. Turner was not the result of what education would do to a slave. That's what white people thought they feared. But it's not that. They feared how empowered he was. They feared how much he could see past the faulty logic of slavery and what he was willing to do to end it. Gray wrote, and this is a quote from the Confessions, No cry for mercy penetrated their flinty bosoms. No acts of remembered kindness made the least impression upon these remorseless murderers. What he is saying there is that he can't fathom how Nat Turner showed no mercy. Yet Gray never once questioned the lack of mercy that slavery carried with it. When a system shows no mercy and gives no way out of it, how can you call Turner the only one who showed no mercy? And it isn't as if Turner acted alone. He carried with him a cause that spoke to many people who found themselves in the same stuck position. People who had no control of their life and no hope of a better one. At the core of Turner's rebellion was the whispers of freedom. It is hard to group all of his cohorts into the same umbrella of self-delusion Turner might have suffered from. Because what his message carried with it was the hope of not just one man, but the hopes of a people. A people who had known only oppression, only dehumanization, and never got even a taste of mercy. We know there's no such thing as a happy slave, just as much as there was no such thing as a good master. Because when the roots of the institution are flawed, not even the most well-intended can make an unjust system a just one. Gosh, very, very well said. <laughs> And I know we already talked about this in our past podcasts, but this rebellion did send shockwaves through the slave South and especially for the state of Virginia, which it had taken place in. They made it illegal to educate black people, like we said in the beginning of today's episode, which is icky for reasons we have discussed. But there's something else they did too. They further limited black people's ability to meet and hold a private assembly. And that's an interesting tidbit, because there's something we haven't gone over yet about this rebellion, and it's actually one of the main reasons we chose this topic. I will not go into detail quite yet, as this is going to be our main focus next week, so we're going to kind of set y'all up for that. What I am referring to is how the whole rebellion potentially got organized, because it's so cool. I remember first researching Nat Turner's rebellion a few years ago, and then briefly again as a refresher for our Civil War podcast, which, by the way, not to plug ourselves shamelessly, but to plug ourselves shamelessly, y'all really need to go listen to those because I'm so insanely proud of how those episodes turned out, and they don't have a lot of listens right now, but I promise they're good. Anyway, back to the subject. So both in my past 
past research and in the research for the Civil War episodes, I found this reoccurring thing that kept coming up in regards to how Nat Turner spread the word about his plans for the rebellion. After looking into this more, because I always found it intriguing, I found such a thought-provoking article. The name of it is Go in the Wilderness, Evading the Eyes of Others in the Slave Song. And it is so interesting. I can't wait to tell you more about it in next week's episode. And we will definitely post the link to this article in our show notes and on our various social media sites so you can read it for yourself. Okay, and that is where the lecture of today's episode is going to end. We're going to take a break, get some tea, and we'll be right back. And now a message from our sponsors. This week is brought to you by Ren's Herbs. Do you ever find yourself feeling unwell, but not so unwell that you want to take medicine? Well, Ren can help you with that. Have a slight stomach ache? Ren's got some ginger. Have a sore throat? Here's some licorice root. Also, more ginger. Or maybe you want to spice up your tea life. Ren's got the answers for that too. Have some lavender or maybe a little sage. If you want to make sure that Ren's herb supply stays forever fresh, you can donate at Ren and Elisa's Ko-Fi account. Ren's herbs. Because her cat's not the only thing that makes her a witch. have music segments now boy have we made it (laughs) um if you're interested in what exactly that music segment is from we'll tell you a little bit more about it in just a few moments but for now uh what you sipping on today elisa today i am having the same thing i'm having yes (laughs) so we're having a three-in-one malaysian tea mix it's got black tea with rock sugar and a non-dairy creamer all conveniently together in a single package. It's really good. I actually used to drink it when I was younger and we decided to get some. And sometimes it's nice to not have to do anything except pour in the hot water and stir. It's always nice to have drinks from your past because I think it kind of like stimulates what you used to feel as a child. Like, (laughs) oh man, (laughs) good old... Not real tea, but powder. (laughs) Bryn, who's your artist this week? Okay. This is the most excited I have ever been to tell you about my artist. (laughs) And I've loved all of my artists. So that really is telling you a lot about this artist. Because it is someone very near and dear to my heart. His name is Dr. Steven Weber, and he was a professor at university for both Elisa and I. I can't rave enough about this professor. Just so you know, if you think Elisa and I are articulate and well-rounded in our education and also how we present things, like 99% of that is because of the incredible professors we had like Dr. Weber. He's super innovative in his teaching style and truly encapsulates what it means to be a liberal arts thinker. Not only is he an awesome educator, he also creates some incredible music too. You know that little segment that you heard between the totally real and not made up at all sponsor and then tea time? That was a segment from one of my favorite songs by him. And the song title is A Day in the Life of a Sunflower. I mean, the name alone says it all. It's so cool. It's from one of my favorite albums by him called Multiplicity. If you have a deep appreciation for music theory, I am telling you, you gotta check out this album. It is so, so, 
so good. So many different layers to dissect and enjoy. If that's not quite your thing, that's okay. He's got a lot of music out there. His latest album is called Light, and if you liked the lecture today, you should know that the whole thing was written while I listened to his album Light on repeat. It features piano pieces from well-known composers like Bach and Scott Joplin. It's great to research and write to, but it's also calming enough for sleep and for a little light background music too. So please check him out and give his music a try. I guarantee it's worth it. Yes, and to jump on this fangirl bandwagon <laughs> while we're on the subject, I will say that I only had Dr. Weber for one semester, but it literally changed my life. He is such a great professor. It's such a sweetheart. Totally. <laughs> so who's your artist this week, Elisa? My artist this week is Ao Tashimi, specifically the soundtrack from the Studio Ghibli film From Up on Poppy Hill. This movie is a lot more slice of life than other movies out of this studio, but it still retains the usual charm. I love listening to the soundtrack while going on walks, tuning out my surroundings while I'm grocery shopping, <laughs> and while riding the bus. Is there any other way to go grocery shopping? Like, do you talk to people that Yeah. I mean, we're from the Midwest, you know. That's true. In between whispering <laughs> underneath your breath, excuse me, so quiet, like nobody can hear it. And listening to music, there's really not a lot of room to uh, talk to anyone, really. Yeah, I mean, you can say goodbye 12 times, too, if you have a little time. <laughs> but yes, it brings some of that Hayao Miyazaki magic to your everyday life. I'm going to especially recommend The Breakfast Song, which is so quaint and cute and is a good way to start the day off on the right foot. So what about our activists for this week, Lisa? I always have to calm myself down <laughs> when I get ready to talk about someone because everyone's amazing. I know. Wow. Our activist this week is Jess Gilbo. She's commonly known for her appearance on Queer Eye as the first lesbian woman on Queer Eye. And she's been amazing and vocal ever since, which I love when everyday people get a platform and decide to promote change. We love to see it. She advocates for mental health issues, including asking for help, which I personally struggle with. One recent tweet literally says, Yes, I see you working hard, but have you practiced self-compassion today? And we love to see a strong black lesbian woman making change and taking names. Definitely look her up and give her all the love. Yeah, for real. And also, Jess, you try to make me cry with that tweet. Like <laughs> so, Ren, tell us what's going on in the news. Okay. Y'all, I know we just did this news a few weeks ago, but it's still a problem. The fires that are happening in the west coast of the United States. Literally, Salem, Oregon sky is red right now. Like, I don't know if you've seen pictures, but it looks like it's straight up out of a picture book about how the world ends. It's terrifying. And all for a gender reveal party, too. Which, how embarrassing for those people. I mean, you started a fire, but also, like, you had a gender reveal party? Ew. But in all seriousness, I can't stress enough how we can't forget about our dying planet. Right now, the Earth is in some real trouble, and we need to do everything we can to help things get better. Like Elisa said before, there are some ways that you can help in your local areas. And one thing that goes a long way is to spread the word and normalizing this topic being talked about as much as possible. Climate change is real, and it's happening right now. And we gotta spread awareness until some real changes take place. And policy 
policies are enacted that actually make a real difference. What real change is going to look like is when the main culprits are forced to do better. Yes, we all have our own power to make small differences, but the people who really need to be held accountable are those in charge of big corporations who have insanely wasteful practices. It's time for a change. Yes. Wow. Sounds so good. It might even be scripted. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's pretty much it for this week. Please be sure to follow and interact with us on social media and check out our merch on Redbubble. We have some really cool patterns and such up. As we mentioned earlier, we are going to be talking about the way that word was spread for Nat Turner's rebellion. So look forward to that. All right. And with that, bye.